Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Alpine Church. I just want to say again, if it's your first time being here, we're excited that you're with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if we've never met before, my name's John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor here at Alpine Logan, and it's great to be back with you guys. I was out a couple of weeks. I taught at the Layton campus a couple of weeks ago, uh, and then last week we were out of town on vacation, so it's good to be back with you guys and good to be fellowshipping with you. Uh, as, as Melissa said earlier, if it is your first time here, man, we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to answer any questions you have. Please stop by our welcome desk on the way out so that we can do that. Um, Hey, today is a little bittersweet because it's the last Sunday we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, at least the last Sunday this year. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark since the very first Sunday of January. We've been going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But starting next week, we're going to have a four-week sermon series for the Advent season. So today we're going to wrap up Mark chapter 13, and then what we'll probably do is in 2024... We'll start Mark probably in early February. We'll go back into Mark chapter 14 so that we can wrap up the resurrection in Mark on Easter Sunday. So that's the plan right now. We'll keep you guys in the loop. But next week, we'll start that Advent series, and I'm excited to share that with you. We started Mark chapter 13 a couple of weeks ago. We're going to wrap it up today. And the way that chapter started out is they were leaving the temple area, and the disciples said, Jesus, look at all these buildings. Aren't they amazing? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, they're going to be completely destroyed, so much so that not even one stone will be left upon another. So is Jesus using hyperbole there? Was he just exaggerating to get his point across? No, that's exactly what happened. The temple was literally destroyed, so much so that not one stone was left on top of another. So as you can imagine, if you're a disciple, if you're a a pious Jew who goes to the temple regularly, it's the center of your religious experience When Jesus says it's going to be destroyed, the disciples want to know when. When is this going to happen? And what are the signs that you will show us so that we know what's about to take place? Now, Jesus didn't give them an answer to the when. He did, however, give them an answer to some of the signs that they could look for to know that the time was approaching. So that's what we talked about the first week when we did Mark chapter 13. Then last week, we talked about more signs. We talked about the tribulation. We talked about the rapture a little bit. We talked about the abomination that causes desolation. And hopefully the most important thing you took home last week, and I know some of you did, because I've already heard some conversations on it, is that we know the end of the story. So even though there's disagreement on the timing and on the order and some of those things, we know who wins. (laughs) We know that Jesus comes back again. We know that he makes every wrong right. And that's what we're looking forward to. So think about this information that Jesus is sharing with the disciples. It's pretty bleak. There's a lot of destruction he's talking about. There's persecution. But he also had words of encouragement. In fact, I would say the words of encouragement are more powerful than the negative stuff that he shared. So, for example, he told them that the persecution they were going to face would actually help to spread the gospel. And he told them that when they were brought before the governors and the councils, they didn't even have to worry about what to say, that the Holy Spirit would speak for them. He told them that he would be coming back again, and that he would be coming back in power and glory, and that he would gather all the believers unto himself. So the good news definitely trumps the bad news. And we see that same kind of pattern in today's part of the passage. So I want you to keep that in mind as we continue on in Mark chapter 13. 
We've titled today's message, When Time Runs Out. And here's what we're going to cover today. We're going to talk about the fig tree. We're going to talk about staying alert. And we're going to talk about still waiting. And one of the things that we've tried to do throughout this, this series in the Gospel of Mark is we've tried to frame each sermon with a question. A question that we want you to be thinking about as we go through the text. And the question today is, how would you live if you didn't believe time would run out? We all know that time on this earth is going to run out, right? I mean, it's, it's a reality. I think we all know that. I think most of us live in a state of suspended belief. We don't really think about it very often. But if that wasn't the case, if time didn't run out, would it drastically change the way you live? See, I think most of us would like to say yes. I think most of us like to say, oh yeah, we would, we would drastically change the way we lived if time didn't run out. But would we really? Would it really change that much? See, I would submit that although most people know time is going to run out, if you look at the way they live their lives day to day, it doesn't indicate it. It doesn't indicate they think time is going to run out, or at least it doesn't indicate they think about it very often. I mean, we all have these quaint sayings like, I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul, or you can't take it with you when you go, but, but do we really live that way? Is that how we really live? Do we live with eternity in mind? Or do we typically live like this is all that there is? How foolish is it of us to spend 90% of our time and energy focused on a life that in the grand scheme of eternity is going to be over like that? Now look, I'm not saying we shouldn't work hard. We should. I'm not saying we shouldn't do our best at school. We should. I'm not saying we shouldn't spend quality time with family and friends. We should do those things. I'm not even saying you shouldn't take a great vacation every year. There's nothing wrong with a great vacation. But have we made those things the main things? And if those aren't the main things, and I don't think they are, then how do we do those things with eternity in mind? How do we keep from getting so focused on the here and now? I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. I think it's a powerful reminder that these things can dominate our lives in an unhealthy way. Here's what he writes. He says, I believe that entertainment and amusements are the work of the enemy to keep dying men from knowing they're dying and to keep enemies of God from remembering that they're his enemies. And this issue isn't anything new. This isn't something that's new for our culture. This has been happening for centuries the Apostle Paul dealt with it. He wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to follow along in your Bible. Verses 18, he says, For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. So this is an issue that Paul had to address more than once. He leads out by saying, as I have often told you before. And this phrase that's translated, whose conduct shows, in this particular translation, the NLT, in a lot of other translations, it says, 
whose walk shows or whose walk reveals they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So if you've ever heard the saying, don't talk the talk if you're not going to walk the walk, that's kind of the idea behind this passage. That there were people who were saying they believed in the gospel. There were people who said they believed in Jesus Christ and his return, but their actions, their conduct didn't show it. And Paul is broken over this. It says that he says this with tears in his eyes. Now think about all the horrible stuff the apostle Paul went through. Rarely does he say he wept. But he weeps over this. Paul says their God is their appetite. Maybe you felt that way Thursday and Friday. <laughs> kind of felt like my God was my appetite over the last couple days, all the Thanksgiving leftovers. Now he's not talking about gluttony here. He's talking about living a life that is all centered around me. When my whole life is just about my comfort, about my selfish desires, about doing what I want to do, that's what they had done. They think only about the life here on this earth. And that conduct says something different than what they were saying with their words. And then Paul goes on to remind them, guys, we are citizens of heaven. If we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're just passing through. This isn't the main thing. And we're supposed to be eagerly awaiting his return. That means the reality, because it's going to happen, the reality of Jesus coming again should impact the way that you and I live day by day. So that's the context of what's been happening in Mark 13 leading up to this. That's Paul writing about it. So let's go ahead and jump into the chapter itself. Mark 13, beginning in chapter 28. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says, Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things take place, you can know that his return is very near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Jesus is going to use an everyday example, as he often did, to drive home his point. And he's going to use the perfect illustration, as you would expect from Jesus. He uses the illustration of a fig tree. And one of the reasons this is the perfect illustration is because of where they were. This whole interaction, this whole conversation is taking place on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives was famous for its fig trees. And on the Mount of Olives, those fig trees grow 20, 30 feet in the air. So there's a very good chance that as Jesus is teaching this parable, the disciples can literally look around and see fig trees. And it's not just the location that makes this the perfect parable. It's also the timing. See, this is happening during the Passover celebration. The trees are going to be in the stage just like Jesus is talking about in the parable. They're going to just be beginning to bud. It's going to be late spring. And the fig tree is a little bit unique because most of the trees in that area don't lose their leaves. And the ones that do lose their leaves, typically their leaves bud out in early spring. But the fig tree is different. The fig tree buds out in late spring. That's why Jesus says, you know when it begins to bud that summer is near. I believe Jesus is using this analogy to encourage them. See, he's talked so much about destruction and persecution 
But he wants them to know that just when things seem the worst, new life is coming. Just when the winter seems the worst, right? Spring is around the corner. Summer is here. Because this is the sign that he's coming back. Now, here's where it gets a little more complicated. The next part of this passage, believers have debated over for centuries. And we're not going to solve that debate today. And we're going to get into some of it on on some different interpretations, some of the more predominant interpretations on this passage. But the the reality is, we're not going to solve it today. So I want to highlight a couple of things before we get into the rest of this passage. The first thing I just want to be honest about is, I don't have time in 30 minutes to get into all the different details for why you might choose one view over another. You need to do some of that homework on your own. So we we created a five-week series on eschatology. It's at PursueGod.org. I'd encourage you to dig into that. It's going to talk in a lot more detail about things like the millennial kingdom, about the rapture, about the tribulation, so that you can make an educated decision on where you stand. Because what we don't want to do is just say, well, Christians have debated about this for centuries, so it doesn't really matter what I believe. That's the lazy way out. Don't do that. Whatever position you take on end times, it should be because of what you believe the Bible says about it. So spend some time, dig into it. I think you'll find that it'll draw you closer to God. This will be a great conversation to do with your small group, great conversation to have with your mentor. The second thing I want to highlight is this is what I would call a family discussion. This is the type of thing that we discuss among the family of Christ. That there are genuine believers on both sides of the debate here. And if someone has a different opinion than you, it doesn't mean they have a smaller faith. It doesn't mean they don't know the Bible well. There are guys who know the Bible a lot better than I do that have a different opinion than I do on the end times. We can and should be united in fellowship, united in mission, and united in spreading the gospel and helping people pursue God regardless of our view on the end times. There's not even a consensus of opinion among the pastors on staff at Alpine about this passage. And yet we are still united in mission. We're still united in purpose. We're still spreading the gospel. We're still helping people pursue God. So whether you're a preterist or a futurist, you should be united with other believers. Now some of you are like, I don't even know what a preterist and a futurist is. What are you talking about? So let me, let me try and explain it. I'll, I'll oversimplify it a little bit. But if you're a preterist... You believe that the majority of the prophecies in Mark chapter 13 have already taken place. And that they took place by the time the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. A futurist would say that even though those events took place when the temple was destroyed, they weren't the ultimate fulfillment of these prophecies. They were a a typology. They were a partial fulfillment, but they pointed to something still to come in the future. A preterist would say that the abomination that causes desolation that we looked at last week, has already appeared. A futurist would say that it has not happened yet. And many futurists would take the passages in Matthew and Mark and Daniel and combine those with passages from 2 Thessalonians and Revelation and say that not only is it going to happen in the future, but that the abomination that causes desolation is actually a person, a person who sets himself up in the temple to be worshipped, namely the Antichrist. Now, I know that's a little bit of an oversimplification, 
If you're an end times geek, you're like, John, you passed over a lot of stuff. I know that. Okay, but I think that'll be helpful for us. See, the debate on this particular passage hinges around two things. The phrase, this generation, and the phrase, all these things. How you answer one of those is going to influence how you answer the other. See, if this generation, in this passage, if this generation refers to the generation that Jesus is speaking to on the mountain, the people who were alive on the earth when Jesus gave this this teaching, if that's what this generation means, then it means all these things in verse 29 is connected to all these things in verse 30, and they center around the destruction of the temple. It means you have to take a more limited view of what all these things mean. It can't mean all these things that he's talked about in the entirety of the chapter because he talks about coming again in power and glory, and we know that Jesus hasn't done that. Another perspective is that this generation refers to the generation that sees the fig tree bud. So in other words, this generation is the generation that sees these things start to happen including the abomination that causes desolation. And once these things begin to happen, they're going to happen rapidly. And they're all going to happen before that generation passes away. In fact, most futurists would say they're going to happen in three and a half years once the abomination that causes desolation reveals himself. A third interpretation is that the word generation here actually means race or people. And so what Jesus is saying is that the Jewish people will not perish until all these things have taken place. Three different ways to interpret the passage, and I can promise you there are Christians who know their Bible well that take all three of those positions. <laughs> okay, And we shouldn't fight over that. Now, it, can be a, it can be a debate topic, like I, I want you to try and see it my way, but it should not be a divide topic for sure. Now I think this is important to look at that because this passage is a passage that some skeptics will use and say, see, Jesus was a false prophet. Because Jesus said all these things would happen before that generation passed, and they didn't. Well, now you have three different ways to interpret that passage that would refute that if someone tries to tell you Jesus is a false prophet. I love how Jesus wraps up this part of the passage. Again, we see this pattern of here's some negative stuff, but I'm going to trumpet with something very positive. Jesus says, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. I think we just read over that and we don't realize how significant that is. What Jesus is saying is his words are eternal. And his words are eternal because he is eternal. It's another proclamation of Jesus' deity. With all the chaos going on in our world today, it gives me so much comfort to know that Jesus' words are eternal. That Jesus' words will never pass away. That no matter what happens on this earth, we can count on the words of Christ. That just like everything he foretold about the destruction of the temple came true, everything he foretold about his second coming is also going to come true. Let's move on in the passage, verse 32 and 33. Jesus says, However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. I want you to think back to what started this whole conversation 
in this whole teaching. Peter, James, John, and Andrew had come up to Jesus privately and asked, when is this going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? When are you coming back? Right? That's what led off the whole conversation. That's the question that's gnawing on them the whole time, and he hasn't answered it yet. And I think they had to kind of be looking at Jesus and going, you know, like, Jesus, this is fascinating. <laughs> we, we love all this stuff you're telling us, but you didn't answer the question. When is it going to happen? And Jesus lets them know, I'm not going to answer the question. I don't even know. Jesus says, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father knows the day and the hour. Now you might read that and go, well, wait a minute. Hold on, Pastor John. I, I thought you said Jesus is fully God. You're always telling us Jesus is fully God and fully man. If Jesus is fully God, isn't he omniscient? Doesn't the Son know everything? Right? It's a valid question. Even though Jesus is fully God, and even though he didn't lose any of his divinity when he was born in the flesh, he gave up some of his divine powers voluntarily. We read about it in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So understand that Jesus' divine privileges weren't taken from him. You can't take anything from God. Jesus voluntarily chose not to exercise some of his divine privileges while he was here on earth. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, you're going to be wasting your time, guys, if you keep pressing me about the win. You know, you can ask till the cows come home. I don't know. Only the Father knows the when. That same warning applies to us today. Right? Since we don't know the when, what should we do? Stay alert, just like he told the disciples. Since we don't know the when, we need to be ready. We need to be eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. And I would say that even if you have an end times view where you think certain things have to happen first, like I do, so I'm, I'm going to play my cards here. I'm going to reveal to you a little bit about my end times view. I believe the abomination that causes desolation has to establish himself in the temple before Jesus is going to come again. But I hold that loosely. I hold that with humility. I might be wrong. We need to be ready for Jesus to come at any time because that's what he told us to do. He said, be alert. Be ready, be on the lookout, be watching. This should also serve as a warning to us to be very wary of Bible teachers who claim they know when Jesus is coming back. Because you can get online, you can get on television, you can see all types of ministers out there who will tell you they know when the second coming is going to happen. No, they don't. Because Jesus said they don't. Jesus said, no one knows except the Father. Now again, he gave us signs, like there's things that that we can see maybe put in motion, but nobody knows the day or the hour. So be wary of any teacher who acts like they do. And he's not done. Like Jesus really wants to drive this point home. So he's going to tell another parable. And we see that in verse 34. Jesus says, The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, 
For you, didn't, for you don't know when the master of the household will return, in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him. In this parable, the master gives each of the slaves work to do until he returns. Did you know that Jesus has given all of us work to do until he returns? Like we have our instructions, we have our marching orders. He's told us what to do. There are some universal instructions that every believer has. One of those is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every single one of us in this room, I can tell you, that's what Jesus wants you to be doing until he comes back. Another one is the Great Commission. Therefore, go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That's for all of us. That's not just the pastor's job. That's not just the full-time missionary's job. All of us as followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to be about the Great Commission. But then there are also instructions that he's given to you individually. Based on the position he's put you in, based on the gifts he's given you, some of you have instructions different than others. For example, parents, you should be the primary pastor of your children. I shouldn't be their primary pastor. That's not my role. That's not the instructions God has given me. That's the instructions God has given you as mom and dad. Kids, God has given you the instructions to honor your father and mother, obey your parents. And then based on the different giftings that God has given you, you have different instructions. You know, the giftings that God gives us are for the benefit of the church, he says. And just like in this parable, in this household, the household runs more efficiently, more effectively. If all of the servants are doing what they're supposed to do, it's the same in the church. When all of God's people are using the gifts he's given them, the church is healthier. The church accomplishes more. And I'm so grateful that so many of you do that. So many of you do exercise your gifts, and God bless you for that, and thank you for that. It's a blessing to all of us who are here. Jesus warns that the servants don't know when he's coming back. And so since you don't know when he's coming back, you need to be alert. You need to be ready. That's what Jesus told the disciples on the Mount of Olives. That's what God's word has told generations since then. And that's what God's word tells us today. I really appreciate the commentary on this passage from Enduring Word Commentary, one of the commentaries I use quite a bit. They write this, Some people have the idea we don't know when Jesus is coming, so it doesn't really matter. Others have the idea we don't know when Jesus is coming, so we have to find out and set a date. (laughs) The right response is, I don't know when Jesus is coming, so I need to be ready. I need to be alert, and I need to be eager. See, Jesus told Peter, James, John, and Andrew to be alert, to be ready. And it's interesting that as you see Peter write his own letter to the church, years after this encounter with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, some of the same thoughts that the Holy Spirit has told the Apostle Peter to share with the church. So we're going to pick this up in 2 Peter chapter 3, if you're following along, verses 9 and 10. This is Peter writing. Keep in mind, Peter literally sat at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus taught him all these things we just looked at from Mark chapter 13. Peter writes this, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. 
But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. So all the way back in the first century, as Peter's writing this to the church, people are already asking, Jesus, what's taking you so long? Like, why aren't you here yet? Maybe you've had some of those same thoughts. Like, I confess, I've had those thoughts over the last several years. Like, Jesus, just come. Like, what's taking you so long? How come you're so slow? And Peter says, he's not slow. He's patient. There's a difference. He's patient because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He's patient because he wants everyone to repent. So you might be here today and you might think that there's no way the God of the universe would want anything to do with you. That you've messed up too bad. That you've made too many mistakes. That is a lie from the enemy. The God of the universe is who drove you here in the first place. The reason you're here is he's drawing you to himself. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to have a relationship with him. And he made that possible by sending his son who went to the cross. God wants you to soften your heart. He wants you to confess your sins and he wants you to seek forgiveness. And when you do that, you're going to find him waiting there with open arms. Just recently, I was visiting with a Christian brother. And we were talking about all the stuff going on in the world, all the brokenness and all the fallenness. And I made the statement, I'm like, man, I'm so sick of this. I just wish Jesus would come back and put an end to it all. And the second I said that, I realized what an insensitive and selfish comment it was. Because this Christian brother has a wife and kids who don't know Jesus yet. Now he was gracious. He didn't say anything to me about it. But I'm sure there had to be something in his mind going, that's easy for you to say, Pastor John. I don't want Jesus to come back yet. I've got a wife and kids and I need them to put their faith in Christ. So he's not being slow, guys. He's being patient. You see, as much as he wants his family to come to know Jesus, God wants them to come to know him even more. Peter continues on in chapter 3. We're going to look at a verse 11 and then jump to 14 and 15. Peter says, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Peter reminds his readers that all of this stuff around us, all the stuff that, if we're honest, gets most of our time and energy, none of it's going to last. It's all going to be destroyed. And so he says, so while we're waiting, you should be living holy and godly lives. He uses two different words there. Holy. A holy life means you should be living a life that's set apart. You should be living a life that looks different than what the rest of the world that doesn't know Jesus is living. And then a godly life means you should be living a life that is obedient. Obedient to the tasks that God has given us while we await Jesus' return. So you can tell that Peter is echoing some of these same thoughts that Jesus taught him on the Mount of Olives all those years ago. Some translations say that we can hasten the Lord's return. The New, the New Living Translation says, hurry it along. Have you ever thought about that? That the church, that as you and I live holy and godly lives, we actually can hurry along the return of Jesus. 
One of the ways we can do that is through evangelism. We know from earlier in chapter 13 that before Jesus is going to come again, every nation is going to hear the gospel. So as you and I take evangelism seriously, as we spread the gospel, that gives an opportunity to hurry along the return of Jesus. And he says, make every effort to live peaceful lives. And when you feel like God is taking too long, remember that his patience gives more people time to be saved. To bring this closer to home, his patience gives you more time to be saved. See, I know some of you are here today and you're still checking out Jesus. You're still checking out Christianity and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. His patience is giving you more time to be saved. Because kind of back to our question, our time is going to run out. Either Jesus is going to come again while we're still alive or we're going to face our own mortality. But one way or the other, all of us are going to come to an end of life on this earth. And God is giving us more time to be saved. That's why we need to respond to the good news of the gospel. That's how Mark started his gospel. If you think all the way back to early January, Mark started out his gospel in Mark 1.1. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark is all about the gospel. It's all about the good news that you and I can have a relationship with God, that you and I can live forever and eternity with him. But the good news actually starts out with some really bad news. The bad news is that all of us are broken. All of us are sinful. All of us have been separated from God. All of us have been separated from our Creator. Now, sin is one of those words that we usually only use on Sundays. You know, you don't hear a lot of people during the week talk about sin. It's kind of a churchy word. But sin just means choosing to follow my own thoughts, opinions, and feelings instead of what God has declared to be true. And we all do it. We're all guilty of it, and we can't fix it on our own. You know, like Jesus was a good teacher, but he didn't mainly come to teach. He came to rescue because you need a rescuer. You need a savior. And that's what Jesus came to do. Further along in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus says, The time promised has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And so I just would encourage you, if you've never done that, there's no better time than today because tomorrow isn't guaranteed for any of us. Jesus might come again, or you just may meet the end of this time on earth. If you've never done that, and you're not sure how, or you have questions, we'll have leaders up front after the service. We'd love to answer those questions. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you. If you've never gone through the pursuit, we talk about the pursuit all the time here at Alpine. The pursuit is a a 12-lesson study that talks through the foundational steps of having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and how to grow in that relationship. So I'd encourage you to grab a copy of that, read through that. If you want to get connected to a mentor who can lead you through it, we'd love to help do that. For all of us in here who have already put our trust in Jesus, I pray that this week we are waiting expectantly and that regardless of the in view that we hold, that we're looking for opportunities to hasten his return. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to say thank you that I can trust that you're coming again. I trust that because everything you prophesied that would happen has happened. When you said the temple was going to be destroyed and literally not one stone would be left upon another, that is such an amazing prophecy. No one would have believed it. And that's exactly what happened. When I look at all the Old Testament prophecies about how the Messiah would come and how you fulfilled each and every one of them, it is mind-blowing. It could not happen by chance. 
And so because you have shown yourself trustworthy in all of those, God, I know you're trustworthy about what you say about Jesus coming back again. And I know that, I know that we win. <laughs> I know how it ends. I know that we get to spend eternity with you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so we say thank you. And we ask you to remind us to be eager to be working on the things you've called us to be working on until you come again. We love you, Jesus, and we ask all this in your name. Amen.